Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. So, California. I'm from Saskatchewan. I love it here. This name has a story very much germane to this year's theme. It was derived from a late medieval European fantasy novel, The Adventures of Esplandia, written by Garcia Ordonez de Montalvo and published in 1510 in Spain about a mythic island called Calafia, ruled by beautiful black women warriors and full of great riches and worldly pleasures. Such romances circulated among Spanish explorers and conquistadores like treasure maps and then became literalized as destinations. They fueled the lure of instant fame and fortune, a powerful factor driving European soldiers of fortune everywhere ever westward in the 15th and 16th centuries. Here is a European map of the New World from 1650 that clearly shows California as an island on the left. This was more than a century before the Spanish actually arrived here in Alta California, and even when they did, they were still not sure that it wasn't an island. This is just one telling indication that the European project of colonization was driven by pathological delusions of grandeur. If the Spanish sailors could only see the myth of Calafia, the late 18th century Franciscan missionaries could only see Alta California natives as primitives to be converted or in the parlance of the time to be reduced. After all, the founding of the 21 missions between San Diego and Sonoma was also a colonization strategy for the Spanish. Disaster for indigenous Californians, as outlined in Elias Castillo's recent Cross of Thorns. Blinded by European preconceptions of entitlement and superiority, neither the mariner nor the missionary could perceive the reality of California, namely that it was home to the most densely populated and flourishing native cultures in North America, diverse tribes living in varied bioregions amidst an abundant and sustainably managed ecology. Americans, for their part, were similarly drawn to California by fantasy, this time by the lure of riches during the gold rush of 1848. The destruction begun by the Spanish along the coast was finished by the Americans in the interior of the state, as chronicled in the new 400-page study by Benjamin Madley, An American Genocide. Of such as these are empires built indeed. From the myths of Calafia to those of the mother lode, Europeans and Euro-Americans were blind to the beauty and dignity of both native and natural California. And that blindness continues today among most residents of 
and visitors to this place. And that is why we are here. So we want to join Severo and Shadi, Bob and Julie in welcoming you to a demythologized California and to this 29 Institute, Bartimaeus Institute, 2019, where devised history can be revised, dismembered stories remembered, and delusion and denial transformed by God's good news of truth and justice. Over the last 13 years, we've held 22 institutes in five different venues around this watershed, as well as in Saskatoon and Minneapolis, both of which I might note also focused on the theme of Indigenous justice. But over the last two years, as we've previously mentioned, our focus necessarily has been on trying to shore up our community as we all try to make sense of how to work and witness under the shadow of number 45's regime. A shadow that just lengthened yet again with last Friday's announcement of a state of emergency at our border. The most apostolic duty of all our mentors taught us is to keep one another's courage up. Thank you. Especially in this true state of emergency, which is this Trump administration. Excuse me. Yeah, man, it's lousy, isn't it? Something happened last summer that helped us to recalibrate and led us to decide on this year's theme of indigenous justice and Christian faith. So we want to begin with a brief or this brief political and theological framing of the 2019 Institute with a story. In early June, we drove up to Sacramento to join a poor people's campaign witness at the state capitol. Many of you have been involved in this campaign, and John Parker, where are you, John? John has been uh, serving on the National Steering Committee. <clears throat> if you're not familiar with the Poor People's Campaign, um, we strongly recommend that you learn more about it. Uh, the day that we were there was part of a six-week stretch of a direct actions at state capitals around the country in celebration of the 50th anniversary of the original Poor People's March on Washington in 1969, animated, as you know, by Martin Luther King Jr. and the Civil Rights Movement. The theme for our June day was indigenous justice. And I realized that in more than 40 years of activism, I'd never actually demonstrated in front of the state capitol. I mean, it's 300 miles away. Uh, so when we processed into the building and continued the protest in the capitol rotunda, Elaine and I were surprised and chagrined to find this. Larkin Goldsmith Mead's 1870 marble sculpture of Columbus' appeal to Queen Isabella, purchased by a wealthy banker and given to the state to place in the rotunda in 1883. One of many, we might add, Jim Bear, that stand in state capitals around this country, most of which were erected like this one during the height of American continental conquest. The sphere in Columbus' hand not only symbolized his controversial theory at the time that the world is round, but more tellingly is an ancient Roman icon of imperial world con 
quest. A delusion resonant with those medieval visions of Calafia. So here, right at the heart of the building representing our state's body politic, stands this icon of the doctrine of discovery, which as we will learn throughout this week, has been the legitimating ideology for European colonization and decimation of indigenous cultures around the world. We were stunned, but also delighted at what happened next. With the echo, echoing rhythm of drumming and chanting filling the entire Capitol building, and there are amazing acoustics of the rotunda working in our favor, a young indigenous activist pulled out of his bag a 24-foot medicine wheel painted on a parachute, and a team of collaborators threw it over the Columbus statue, and it was beautiful. The top hole, as you can see, see fitted so neatly on Isabella's crown. Thus, a few precious for a few precious moments, this abomination was enveloped beneath the pan-Indian slogan, all nations, one fight. Of course, before long, security trooped in, removed the covering, and then poignantly took position in the circle surrounding the statue as if to protect its toxic mythology from the indignation of the people gathered, a genuine unmasking of state values. This confrontation was powerful and pointed. Thirteen moral witnesses were arrested and charged with vandalism. But who, really, are the vandals of Turtle Island? So as Elaine and I debriefed on the drive home uh, the next day, we decided, you know, um, it was important to focus on the Trumpocalypse these last two years at the BKI because truly there is so much going so wrong for so many so quickly right now. Amen? Amen. But you know, screw the news cycle. Yeah. And, and, its co and its codependent dance with the regime. Let's return to the roots of this crisis, of which the resurgence of neo-fascist personalities and policies is only a symptom. And those roots are revealed by statues in state houses, which romanticize and perpetuate the paradigm on which entire countries, like the US and Canada and Australia, are founded, and which continues to legitimate so many contemporary policies of disenfranchisement and dehumanization. So we decided that at this 2019 BKI, here in the dead middle of these long four years, under an administration that is holding the world ransom to the politics of white supremacy and the economics of capitalist ransacking of the earth, we would refocus our attention on the roots of these pathologies. So we have three goals, friends, for the next four days. Grecia, where are you? Grecia likes goals. <laughs> She's a community organizer. Here they are, Grecia. <laughs> Our first and central objective is to build desperately needed settler literacy in the core issues of indigenous justice. Now, some of you may not be familiar with the term settler, and we'll use that throughout this week, 
We've adopted the term from uh, the use from Canada, which generally is ahead of the U.S. on most indigenous issues, although also has a long way to go. And at its broadest, the term settler refers to all of us who are not indigenous. But it only secondarily reflects, uh, refers to recent immigrants, Suen Hyun, or generally to people of color who often came to North America involuntarily. Primarily, settler refers to those of us descended from the dominant colonizing culture who now occupy land and use resources and presume entitlement to this place, though in most cases we did not and do not acquire these things justly from the perspective of First Peoples. So our main goal is to build settler literacy in three broad issue categories that are key for indigenous people in the US, Canada, Australia, and beyond. Land, excuse me. The long and bitter legacy of theft and ecological destruction, as well as contemporary efforts at land reparation and repair. Law, the devising of legal theories of white entitlement and the shameless breaking of treaty covenant, as well as organizing it to construct a more equitable human rights foundation for indigenous survival and flourishing. And language, the historic suppression, but also current struggles to rehabilitate. Thank you, Matt, for your work on this. Uh, native linguistic and cultural traditions. Because while it may be true what Dr. King taught us, that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, it is also true that indigenous justice isn't just one issue among many, which maybe we activists will get to one day. This institute proceeds rather on the conviction that the legacy of domination, disappearing, and disrespect of the first peoples of our respective countries is the root of all subsequent injustice and that the work of healing and building right relations with our native sisters and brothers will sow the seeds of all needed social change. We're not trying to position this as the first among oppressions as if there is a hierarchy of pain, nor to say it's the only issues we should be working on, but rather these are the roots of everything. The immigrant rights struggle, most of those currently stuck at the U.S.-Mexican border three hours south of here right now are indigenous peoples driven from their own places by U.S.-backed economic and pol pol political violence. Climate crisis, just ask indigenous Pacific Islanders being driven off their homes by global sea rise. Gender justice, listen closely tomorrow night as our sisters talk about the missing and murdered indigenous women. Human trafficking, Native children and women have, seen, uh, have been trafficked for 500 years. To understand these roots means that our best efforts to be the change we seek, from watershed discipleship or permaculture to Black Lives Matter or Poor People's Campaigns, must be grounded in this radical to the roots analysis. We have made a point at the BKI of apprenticing ourselves over the years to the Southern Freedom Movement and its great theologian Martin Luther King Jr. certainly understood native justice as a root issue. 
Our nation was born in genocide, he wrote in 1963, when it embraced the doctrine that the original American, the Indian, was an inferior race. Even before there were large numbers of Negroes on our shore, the scar of racial hatred had already disfigured colonial society. He added, we are perhaps the only nation which tried as a matter of national policy to wipe out its indigenous population. Moreover, we elevated that tragic experience into a noble crusade. Indeed, even today, we have not permitted ourselves to reject or feel remorse for this shameful episode. It is these roots that we wish to probe this week. Another key commitment of the BKI is to teach ourselves the history of the struggle for social change. And to take a pertinent and prominent example, 55 years ago next month, on March 9, 1964, shortly after Alcatraz Island in the San Francisco Bay was closed as a penitentiary and the U.S. declared it as surplus federal property. Several Sioux activists landed there and reclaimed it as, an, as Indian, land Indian land based on treaty promises that such surplus land would be returned to tribes. Yes, and this fall will be the 50th anniversary of the beginning of the more famous Native American occupation, in which from November 20th, 1969 to June 11th, 1971, a coalition of activists called Indian of All Tribes, Indians of All Tribes, took over and held Alcatraz Island. Their proclamation read in part, we, the Native Americans, reclaim the land known as Alcatraz in the name of all American Indians by right of discovery. We offer the following treaty. We will purchase this land for $24 in glass beads and red cloth, a precedent set by the white man's purchase of a similar island about 300 years ago. The statement concluded, it would be fitting and symbolic that ships from all over the world entering the Golden Gate would first see Indian land and thus be reminded of the true history of this nation. After almost a year and a half long occupation, which brought international attention to the plight of indigenous peoples in the US and sparked more than 200 related instances of civil disobedience around the country, the last indigenous occupiers were forcibly removed by federal troops. Some called the occupation the cradle of the modern Native American civil rights movement. It is these stories we wish to tell this week. And so we encourage you to check out the brief half-hour documentary on the Alcatraz occupation. So one more word about going to our roots this time to the roots of our faith. Uh, you know that this gathering bears the name of our dear elders, the Kinslers, despite their inability to be here. We always like to explain, particularly for our first-time attendees, why it also carries the moniker of a poor blind man. 
That name comes from a story found in the Gospel according to Mark in which a beggar sitting along the road, by the way, in the symbolic discourse of the evangelist, encounters the healer Jesus, despite being ignored by the crowds. So we want to briefly correlate each of these three archetypal characters to the theme of our week. Bartimaeus is a poor and physically disabled person, which in antiquity like today guaranteed invisibility and expendability by empire. But in Markan symbolism, blindness is ultimately a spiritual malady. It names, on one hand, an inability to truly apprehend the world's suffering because of insularity and denial, and on the other hand, to see how the world could and should be according to the vision of God's justice and healing. Because of our captivity to the status quo and resulting lack of moral and political imagination. In that sense, it is those of us socialized into privilege today who are the most blind to both the pain and the promise. We settlers are Bartimaeus. And the deepest expression of our spiritual blindness and poverty is our carefully socialized ignorance and privileged ambivalence regarding the past and present story of indigenous peoples of this land. Jesus, the other main character in the story, could not be less like us. He is from Galilean peasant stock, rooted in his land, formed by Roman, Roman and Judean oppression, but also by deep traditions of resistance and resilience, grounded in the wilderness prophets of his people. Jesus' ministry as a healer and animator of dignity and community embodied the counterintuitive truth of history, namely, that transformational change never trickles down from the elites and always rises from the underside. So we would argue that Jesus, the ancient Palestinian Jew, is fully indigenous. That is, he is someone whose people's lifeways have been under assault for 5,000 years by empire, and yet who survive thanks to strong practices of memory and identity and resistance, and who still strive to walk in a good way. Which makes the Jewish Jesus of Scripture not white, as he is in too many churches still, but brown and very, very red. Then and now. He's not like us settlers, but he is calling us to liberation. The third character in this story is the crowds who try to silence Bartimaeus. These are the bystanders who think the beggar is just part of the landscape to be ignored, who is in the way and want to get on with bigger and better things. Their blindness is, in fact, much deeper than the physical challenges of the poor man. We settlers should also identify with these would-be followers, confused and distracted and disinterested in the marginalized folk right in front of us, which is why most of our churches today cannot be bothered with coming to terms with the bitter history of colonizing missions, have yet to repent for long-standing efforts to suppress native spirituality or running schools that sought to kill the Indian in order to save the child, Two years later, Jimmy Betts, we are still figuring out how to stand with you and others who stood with those resisting pipelines at Standing Rock. Let us be clear that these churches are the communities that have mothered us in the faith. 
and yet they and we all too often remain under the spell of empire, unable to see enough of the pain and the promise. But in Mark's story, indigenous Jesus halts the parade, waves off the naysayers in order to encounter one poor man whose singular plea, stripped of delusion and entitlement, is Kyrie eleison. Lord, have mercy. Jesus, like Yahweh of the old Exodus story, hears this cry. And he stops to inquire, to ask, as Sister Ruby Sales puts it, where does it hurt, brother? The tension of this moment is nicely captured in this clay relief by our friend Charles McCullough who depicts Jesus with one hand on Bartimaeus and the other hand holding off the crowds who would obstruct or ignore the poor man. Bartimaeus, according to Mark, just wants to see, and he is willing to give up what little he has and so throw away his cloak, the tool of his begging trade. That's how much he wants to see. Jesus, indigenous Jesus, can work with folk like that. Get up, says Jesus. That's resurrection, resurrection language in the Gospels. Because it is faith like this that restores vision. Bartimaeus does arise, but not to go off and reintegrate into mainstream society. No, he decides also to join the movement for liberation. In this little story, he has moved from being beside the way to getting in the way, to following Jesus on the way. Which is why Bartimaeus, in Mark's narrative arc, is the archetypal disciple. May we aspire to this. The original slogan of our institute was, to believe is to see. As you know, this is a reversal of the famous adage so dear to rationalist, empirically oriented Western culture. Only if we believe that another world is possible and imperative from the perspective of the Creator will we be able to see ways to seed and nurture practices, both personal and political, to make such a world real. Mark's story teaches us that faith is not cognitive assent to religious ideas. Faith is not loyalty to religious institutions or rituals. Faith is not do-it-yourself spirituality. However helpful these things may sometimes be. No, faith is nothing more and nothing less than the desire above all else to see and be willing to relinquish what is most basic and habitual, the cloaks of our privilege, the cloaks of our insularity, the cloaks of our professional aspirations in order to embrace the way of liberation. And that is the long-standing goal of the Bartimaeus Kinsler Institute to nurture that kind of faith. Of course, there lie, lies a formidable task for those of us settler Christians. What does it mean to walk the way of repentance, solidarity, and relationship with indigenous communities? when we have been so thoroughly schooled and socialized into denial 
and ambivalence. What does it mean to get up for those of us who bear the awful weight of delusional superiority dating back at least six centuries? That is the true white person's burden. How do we get up when we feel paralyzed by the weight of genocidal history that stretches from Acadia to Australia? as our esteemed indigenous speakers and panelists will outline this week. It's an almost incomprehensibly vast legacy. Every single acre of land in North America has been impacted by colonial domination and destruction. And how do we theologically deconstruct primal and pervasive ideologies? such as the doctrine of discovery, as will be probed by Ted, Allison, and Michelle on Wednesday night. Wouldn't it be so much easier to just burn some sage, hang a dream catcher, and talk about reconciliation? But as Gianni Crow puts it rather concisely, our challenge is to abandon any romanticism we might have regarding Native culture, and honestly face the multiple strata of trauma, theirs and ours. Yes, these are weighty matters, and the Native guests among us this week intend to talk about them. And we have endeavored to center their voices in this program. As the great Lakota theologian and historian Vine Deloria famously put it in 1970 in one of the books that shaped my own consciousness, this time we talk, you listen. So here we are, white settlers and our friends of color gathered as a community to listen, to build courage and conviction, to de-school ourselves, to shed spiritual blindness and cast off cloaks of stuckness in order to follow the way. Which brings us to our third goal of this institute. We seek to build literacy in these issues in order return, to return to our home place and engage them with renewed focus and determination there. And we will covenant to that end on Friday. And this seems like a good moment to make it official. Next year's BKI will focus on the work of settler solidarity. And so we invite all of you to make this two-year commitment with us to this process of re-anchoring our discipleship in deep, deep roots. We close our framing comments by naming one more goal. Our settler churches have been riding shotgun. This is such a painful picture to me. Oh, it's not even up there yet. Okay, get over it. With the colonial project in North America from the beginning. And because of this, the gospel has been compromised profoundly, and many of us feel that betrayal deeply as the children of that gospel. And this is a bitter conundrum that both the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel lamented long ago under the heel of a different empire, expressed in a proverb that was widely circulating in ancient Israel. The parents have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. And this is a picture of a beautiful child whose teeth 
are seriously set on edge. It's time, therefore, to realize that our settler ancestors in the faith, to paraphrase the Esau story in Genesis 25, sold out their gospel birthright for a hot meal at the table of empire, appropriately depicted in this 17th century European painting. To understand this further is to further realize that the history of white settler Christianity has come to a dead end. Yet where does that leave settlers like me, who inherited the gospel of faith, and like Ched, who adopted it? Should we abandon the Christian tradition as hopelessly compromised beyond rehabilitation? And we know keenly that this is a pull with which many of us in this room wrestle. But let us be clear, we will not exonerate ourselves by merely dissociating from Christianity. Walking away from the church does nothing to heal the wounds inflicted by our ecclesial ancestors, ecclesial ancestors. What indigenous folks need us to do is not shirk responsibility, but embrace it and walk the long road of figuring out how to make things right. Moreover, we believe that if we settlers undertake the difficult and demanding work of healing from our white supremacy and entitlements and learning how to be allies in the movements for indigenous justice, we can find a renewal of faith and find that renewal with and through the very people who our colonial Christian ancestors rejected as inferior and expendable. To borrow a trope from Psalm 118 that was the, very important to the early church, the stone on which the builders of America and the builders of Canada and the builders of Australia the stone which they rejected can be our cornerstone. The only future the gospel has lies in recovering the deep past of our tradition by following the indigenous Jesus and apprenticing ourselves to and partnering with native believers such as those who will speak to us this week. The late Richard Twist, a dear and much-missed friend of Randy and Edith, had a name for this decolonizing project. He called it Rescuing the Gospel from the Cowboys. We pray that this week some of this work can be done as well. As we said last year, and I want to say again in closing, Elaine and I chose not to work in the academy, where actually Elaine had a legitimate job when I met her. And we didn't feel called to ordain ministry, preferring to work at the edges of the church. And we both walked away from relatively secure movement organizing jobs because we wanted to do this. To build a camp at the intersection of seminary and sanctuary and streets, soil, soma, and psyche. To bring the best of these spheres to the task of nurturing radical discipleship. We began this work in earnest back in 2001 with Lydia Wiley Kellerman's mom and dad and uh, Joyce and Nelson Johnson, uh, that's Nelson pictured there, and others in the Word and World Experiment, which continues today based out of Detroit. This institute is another iteration of that vision, and if we're doing it right, 
At various moments throughout this week, you will think you are in a prayer meeting or a ceremony. In other times, you'll think you're at an organizing workshop with Grecia outlining goals. Other times, you'll think you're at an art exhibit. Other times, in a classroom. Other times, in a town hall meeting. Building these spaces is our central vocation at BCM. But more than that, it's our life's work. And we want you, each and every one of you, to carry it on and on until the church recovers itself as a movement and our movements rediscover what it means to be church. Welcome to the Bartimaeus Kinsler Institute. And on this last equally personal note, we want to dedicate this week to Roman Bedor, a high chief in the Western Micronesian Island Republic of Belau, who passed away six months ago. In the early 1980s, Roman, a young lawyer at the time, and I served on the International Steering Committee of the Pacific Concerns Resource Center, a transnational indigenous people's movement. He became a beloved mentor, a jovial, wise, and deeply committed decolonizer who later assumed the role of high chief of his clan in a village I lived at for a time in 1985. Roman was a fierce justice activist advocate who worked closely with the women's movement struggling to protect Palauan sovereignty from U.S. military colonialism. Roman died exactly 31 years after his father was murdered in political violence by a gunman who was looking for Roman. Roman knew who that murderer was, and yet he carried on the rest of his life with dignity and courage, never calling the murderer out. I am grateful that almost 40 years ago, this man helped lead me into indigenous solidarity. May his memory be blessed. You have been listening to the Bartcast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the Bartcast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening. Thank you.